0: The time is now 6 o'clock. Welcome to WORT's local news for Wednesday, January 10th, 2024. I'm your host, Vicki Iden.
1: And I'm your host, Robert McClure. In tonight's news, conservation groups are trying to create more awareness about wildlife collisions.
0: The city of Madison has a new poet laureate, and...
1: In the second half, a local barista talks stress and fair compensation. Some headlines from 1964 resurface, and our storm from yesterday may resurface on Friday, or it may be worse, so stay tuned for that. This is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local evening news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening.
0: Why have drug prices doubled in the last 10 years? Insurers blame drug companies while pharmacies blame the dominance of so-called pharmacy benefit managers. Those are the brokers between drug manufacturers, insurance agencies, and pharmacies, They decide what drugs are covered under an insurance plan and how much they cost. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that pharmacy benefit managers control how 80% of drugs are distributed in the United States. In Madison, the largest pharmacy benefit manager is Navitas, with over 600,000 enrollees. But lawmakers in Wisconsin are joining a nationwide push to regulate how these brokers operate and possibly help control drug costs. A bill introduced in November got a public hearing last month. The legislation would add on to existing law passed in 2021 that sought to regulate much more of pharmacy brokers' operations, and it would seek to protect independent pharmacists by requiring that pharmacies are paid for at least the cost of acquiring drugs. The bill has some bipartisan support, but insurers, drug companies, and major employer organizations have registered in opposition.
1: A proposal to purchase 75,000 acres of land east of Rhinelander in the interest of protecting the Pelican River has been revived, according to Wisconsin Public Radio. During last summer's state budget talks, a senator's anonymous objection stopped the proposal in its tracks. But now state funds may not be necessary. A private conservation group, Gathering Waters, has raised the necessary $4.5 million to match a federal grant. Local officials with assistance from U.S. Congressman Tom Tiffany are suing the federal government to stop the land purchase. They say they want the parcel to remain on the county's tax rolls. However, Gathering Waters says they will continue to pay the same amount of taxes. The land will still be used for logging and have public access for recreation.
0: A little less than two years ago, Assembly Speaker Voss squeaked out a win in a primary where he faced an extreme MAGA devotee. The Associated Press reports that now, one year after his term began, he is facing a recall campaign. Petitioners filed yesterday with the Wisconsin Elections Commission. They claim that Voss has not done enough to reform the state's election procedures and did not make a strong effort to fire Commission Manager Megan Wolfe. They've also stated they're angry that he fired the election investigator Michael Gableman. But actually getting a recall election can be challenging. To get ballot status, they must collect over 7,600 signatures. That is equal to 25% of all the voters in that district in the last gubernatorial election. That's a lot of doors to knock on in the middle of the winter in a mostly rural district.
1: This fall, a bipartisan group of legislators formed a task force looking for solutions after Wisconsin received an F grade from an anti-sex trafficking advocacy group. The group, Sharing Hope International, found that the state did not have laws requiring financial penalties for traffickers or compensation for victims, nor is there required training for police prosecutors or social workers. The Associated Press reports that the task force has now introduced a slate of bills to address these issues. One bill would increase the penalty for soliciting prostitution to 10 years in prison. Another would allow underage victims to sue their perpetrators until the victim is 35 years of age. Other provisions of the bills are aimed at increasing awareness, focusing on students, service providers, and law enforcement. Despite being introduced over multiple legislative sessions, the task force did not include a bill that would provide immunity for minors charged with prostitution. They also did not include a bill that would prohibit the sheltering of a runaway minor without informing police.
0: The American Birkebeiner, the largest Nordic skiing race in the continent, is still slated to go ahead in the Wisconsin Northwoods next month. That's despite weeks of above freezing temperatures this winter, reports the Milwaukee Journal-Sentinel. Even this week's storm hasn't brought as much snow to the north woods. But a spokesperson for the Miner says that there will be a race in late February. Good news to the roughly 13,000 skiers who have registered to participate this year.
1: The Madison and Sun Prairie communities continue to mourn the death of two children who drowned in a Sun Prairie retention pond last week. The two brothers were students at Royal Oaks Elementary School in Sun Prairie, reports Madison365. They died after falling through the ice of a retention pond behind an apartment complex. An online fundraiser for burial and memorial service has raised $75,000 so far. Meanwhile, one local alder is pushing for the installation of fencing around retention ponds to prevent future tragedies, reports the Wisconsin State Journal.
0: A local birding and conservation group is changing its name for the second time in a year's span, also reports the Wisconsin State Journal. Last year, the group formerly known as Madison Audubon announced it would drop the moniker. That came as a nationwide reckoning reckoning among birding groups over the legacy of naturalist John Ames Audubon, who enslaved people and held racist views in the 19th century. Now the Madison-based birding group is known as the Badgerland Bird Alliance or BBA, a change the group announced last year. That name could be short-lived after a commercial entity out of Waukesha is raising objections. That company is called Badgerland Birding. A new name for the Madison-based nonprofit is expected to be announced in the coming weeks.
1: And those were the headlines for this evening, now on to the rest of the day's top stories. Wisconsin may not be in peak season right now when it comes to wildlife collisions with vehicles, but conservation groups are trying to create more awareness about the issue so that year-round risks are lowered, both for people and wildlife. Mike Mullen of the Wisconsin News Connection has the details.
2: Data show that Wisconsin is among the top five states for car versus animal collisions, and on a national scale, wildlife advocates are highlighting efforts to prevent them. The National Wildlife Federation says there are more than 1 million such collisions in the U.S. each year, resulting in injuries and deaths to animals, drivers, and passengers. And costs associated with these accidents range between 8 and $11 billion annually. The Federation's Jeremy Romero says another impact tied to all this is the ecological effect. And roads, fences, development, things like that are all types of fragmentation that decrease connectivity
3: for wildlife to be able to move across the landscapes.
2: Romero fears the situation could worsen with projections showing higher traffic volumes in the coming years. He points to good news, though, with the federal government rolling out a new $350 million pilot program. States can apply for grants to pursue safe wildlife crossing infrastructure. A 2021 investigative report found Wisconsin has many crossings for smaller animals but not deer. State officials contend these projects aren't as effective for species in this region. Still, Romero encourages all states to beef up research and look at ways to reduce these collisions. He says drivers can do their part, too. This day and age, people are busy
3: and on the go and rushing in a lot of ways. And I think if you're in an area where you know there's a lot of wildlife, the best thing and the most immediate step you can take to prevent wildlife vehicle collisions to slow down.
2: Other tips include keeping an eye out for animal crossing signs and to flicker your high beams when approaching wildlife in hopes of causing the animal to scurry away. The peak time of year for deer collisions is October through December during hunting and mating seasons, but DNR officials say there can be an uptick in late spring when fawning happens. This is Mike Mowen for Wisconsin News Connection. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org.
0: It's now 6.15 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Stephen S. Espada Dawson is Madison's new poet laureate. The Common Council appointed him to the honorary position last night. He succeeds Angie Trudel Vasquez, who has been the city's poet laureate since 2020. Earlier today, Dawson told WORT news producer Faye Parks how he started writing poetry, the common themes in his work, and his plans for the future. Thank you for joining me, Stephen.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: So just
4: to kick things off, how did you get your start writing poetry?
3: I kind of have a bizarre poetry origin story that I'd be happy to tell you. I went to kind of a, a sketchy high school and it was a little dangerous to go to the library. If, if someone saw you going into the library, it could be bad for you, but I would sneak in and I would go to the poetry section and I would find lines to use in my love letters. And specifically Naruda, Naruto is my favorite person. So I actually got my start in poetry through blatant theft of, uh, <laughs> of someone someone else's work. One of the times that I snuck into the library, there was a poster for a poetry contest that one of the librarians was hosting. And the prize was uh, a brand new iPad, or sorry, iPod, and and those had just come out. So this was a really big deal. I don't remember what I wrote about, but I do remember rhyming boulders and shoulders. Uh, It was probably a really terrible poem. But I ended up winning the contest because I was the only one in my entire school that submitted. That was my first sort of uh, poetry victory, my first poem, and uh, I haven't looked back since.
4: And so, how did you make your way to Madison?
3: So, my partner and I were living in Austin, Texas for a couple of years before this. Uh, I had just finished my Master's of Fine Arts in poetry. I moved to Austin, where she was finishing her Master's of Fine Arts in Fiction. I mean, it was a great place to live for a little while. I got to teach poetry there, and I got to meet a bunch of great people. And kind of shot in the dark, I applied to a fellowship in Wisconsin through the Wisconsin Institute for Creative Writing, which is at UW-Madison. And I got in. And I actually did my MFA in the Midwest and I never thought I would make it back here. So here I am and I've kind of fallen in love with the city. I I never thought I would just be a couple blocks from a gorgeous lake and meet all the fantastic people here that I have.
4: And now you're Madison's new Poet Laureate. How does this process work? Were you nominated for the position?
3: I am, thank you. I just learned that last night, frankly, through uh, a voting process that took place at the Common Council, and I start on Monday the 15th. So there is a nomination process, and you can also apply to be the poet laureate. Someone forwarded me the application actually when it was past due. There was an extension that was happening, and I was like, there is no way this is going to happen. I've been in Madison kind of a short time, but I am bringing a lot of experience with me. So I thought, you know, I like this place. I want to put roots down here. So let them tell me no, which is a, a thing you have to do in poetry. You have to let people tell you no. You can't let yourself tell you no. So I applied and I got the news when uh, the current sitting Madison Poet Laureate, Angie Trudel Vasquez gave me a phone call.
4: That's so exciting. Congratulations.
3: Thank you. Yeah, I am, uh, I am still sort of processing it. I feel very lucky, very grateful.
4: Did you get any advice from our last poet laureate? What sort of work are you going to be doing moving forward?
3: Angie has already been so helpful helping me walk into this space definitely more gracefully than I might have on my own. She's full of wisdom, she's also an incredibly hard worker, and she has built a pair of (laughs) poetry shoes that I don't know if I will ever fit into myself, but she did give me a lot of advice about how to sort of pace myself and to learn to say no to things and to say yes to things I'm really excited about. I can't tell you everything that I plan to do as Poet Laureate because I learned that I was going to be Poet Laureate last night, but I do have some things planned. Most notably, I plan to return to work with one of my favorite populations as a creative writing teacher, which is incarcerated people. So I do plan to work more with the incarcerated community here in Wisconsin. I think that getting more poetry to them and getting more poetry out from the prison system for others to see is super important. And I think that if poetry is how we might imagine the world differently, this is a population that sort of needs that imagining the most. So I think that putting together an anthology would be a really great idea, an artifact that they could hold in their hands that represents their making, their imagining. That sort of would be the goal of my first year or two.
4: Yeah, it sounds like poetry was sort of like a a sanctuary for you as a young person. Is that the kind of energy that you want to bring to incarcerated folks in Wisconsin?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think that I have learned so much about myself. If the writing process is part of your subconscious right tapping into part of your subconscious then writing is a way that we can learn about ourselves and also you know better ourselves understand how we're feeling and who we are and also imagine ourselves in a different place right So it has always helped me. It has been a a huge cornerstone of my mental health and progression going forward. And that is something that not only to incarcerated people, but to the citizens of Madison, I definitely want to impart that practice.
4: Focusing more specifically on your work, what are some themes that you generally write about?
3: So I primarily write poems about growing up and about my family. I write a lot of poems about my brother. My brother is slash was a heroin addict, and he went missing in 2009. Writing about a missing person is a really strange thing because there's no evidence to process, right? You're literally writing about an absence with no proof. So it's definitely been a struggle. And I think that, again, that learning about myself and, and learning about my brother through the act of writing has been crucial for me, to persist even. I also write about my mother. My mother is terminally ill. These are my only two family members of my immediate family. So sort of like learning to process that grief beforehand, right? I, I write a lot of elegiac poems that are all kind of pending. It's like processing the grief before grief.
4: Well, wow, I'm, I'm really sorry to hear that, but I'm, I'm glad that your writing is helping you move forward. Is there any poetry that you'd like to share with us? One of your favorite poems that can maybe sort of point to these ideas that you've been discussing?
3: So I think this is a good poem to read because it was actually inspired. I, I wrote it here upon my first year here, and it was inspired by, I don't know if you remember, there was this kind of a massive hailstorm that happened in Madison. I saw some hail as big as golf balls. And it was really an astonishing thing when nature proves itself to you. So it sort of just shook me up. This is a poem called Ars Poetica with Passing Hailstorm. The ceiling is a woman buried upside down. Let me start again. In Maywood, California, there's a library that's important to me. It's many ceiling lights in different glass breasts pointing down at their readers, each nipple a gathering of dead moths. At the hospital, I hear a nurse call cancer the big casino, as in the house always wins. A house is a many-sided die always rolling on its spine. I spent my teenage years watching a good mother lose her breasts, her hair, She screamed in the shower. She screamed in the mirror. Each drain wreathed with death's jet black wig. There was no Sesame Street episode for this lesson. The first time you see a man's hand up cookie monsters, your childhood dies a little. Every day I wait under passing clouds, feverish and eager to see a flash of skin something hairy and flesh-colored to point my pitchfork at. After that last hailstorm, the front yard looked like a fancy party where the guests lost all their pearls. Watch me busy myself with finishing line, string each bead of ice together. Let me start again. This is a gift quickly melting in my hands. So this was my first shot at an Ars Poetica. An Ars Poetica is a form of poem that is about poetry. And Ars Poeticas are really difficult, right? And some people even say that you shouldn't write them until you've been writing poetry for 50, 60 years, right? But when you are really close to death in your life, it can kind of make every poem feel very urgent, feel like an Ars Poetica, So it's something that I really resisted to write a poem about poetry. And this was my first real shot at it. So the poem does talk about primarily my mother and her sickness and the devastation that is cancer. And it casts a shadow much bigger than itself. Right. So it's obviously about that shadow growing up. But also about poetry and specifically that connection to her life being this gift, right? This gift of a pearl necklace that I am making. And as I am making it, it is melting in my hands. So this poem does feel very urgent to me. It feels like it's a poem that knows that death must come and, and life must end. But the creating, the making really never stops.
4: So I'm curious too, are there any particular poets or writers in general that have been an inspiration for
5: you?
3: Oh, wow, yes. The list is (laughs) very long. I owe so much of my poetry to reading. I mean, truly, there is no way to become a better writer than to become a, a better reader. So I think that Natalie Diaz is probably my favorite poet. I think that Matt Rasmussen is a close second. Natalie Diaz's book, When My Brother Was an Aztec, is primarily about her, her brother's struggle with addiction and how it impacted the family. And Matt Rasmussen's book, Black Aperture, which is sort of underrated, it flies under the radar a lot, and I think that everyone should read it. It is about his brother and the loss of his brother at a young age. And I think that if both of those books sort of like had this love child, I think that it would result in, in work similar to mine.
4: So you mentioned the importance of reading. Where can folks find more of your poetry? Do you have a website or social media you'd like to plug?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So I do have a website. If you just search my name, Stephen Dawson, it's one of the first ones that comes up. And I don't really have social media, but I do have a, a Twitter. And I say that because it's unfortunate and most people shouldn't have a Twitter. <laughs> so.
4: Before I let you go, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners, either about your new position, about poetry in general?
3: Yeah, I mean, this is something that I said at the Common Council last night, but I think that, I, I think that part of what gave me this position is the things that, that you can quantify. What what qualified me for this position are things that you can quantify, these uh, awards and publications and things like that and teaching experience, et cetera. But I have to say that I know what it's like to be an underdog and that underdog community is who I intend to help most as Poet Laureate. Uh, And I I think that's what qualifies me most for this position. And I I can't tell you enough about how excited I am.
4: Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Stephen.
3: All right. Thank you, Faye. Thank you, W-O-R-T.
4: That was Stephen Espada-Dawson, Madison's new Poet Laureate. The Common Council approved him for the job in last night's meeting. Stephen says that poetry has been an outlet for him to process grief. Now, as Poet Laureate, he says that he hopes to use his writing experience to support incarcerated folks in Wisconsin and potentially help them create an anthology.
1: Time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us.
0: This week on Madison's Backbone, Mikey and Riley continue to spill the tea about a barista's daily grind. Crafting the perfect beverage, juggling mental wellness, and parasocial relationships are discussed in this week's Piping Hot episode. Listen in to see what else is brewing for Madison's Backbone. A community is a unified
6: body of individuals sharing something in common. Over a quarter of a million people call Madison, Wisconsin their home. Have you ever wondered about the secret to Madison's vibrant and unique community? Well, I have the answer for you. Workers. This segment features the working voices who undeniably strengthen and brighten Madison's community on the daily. I am Riley Cutright and this is Madison's Backbone. Last time, we discussed the demands of being a barista with Mikey in part one. We talked about clocking in at 4.30 in the morning, crafting drinks people know and love, and some of the frustrations of not feeling recognized by employers via financial compensation. Well, we're not wasting any more time. We're gonna jump right back into the thick of it.
7: They have pockets overflowing with profit and that profit only goes up. And, you know, our compensation doesn't change. It doesn't change relative to inflation and it doesn't change relative to prices. So I'm wondering why they don't see the value in their front line. They want to have as few baristas as possible and stretch them as far as possible. And the band-aid solution for them, I guess, is that, hey, we'll pay for your therapy.
6: Yeah, going back to like stretching you as thin as possible Mm -hmm. and expecting you to do all of these things. But how does that kind of affect your mental capacity? Like, how does that affect your day to day being stretched so thin at a job that is so demanding?
7: It's kind of a constant teetering season or experience of trying to weigh up how much the colleagues that I have and how much they mean to me is worth against the exasperation that comes along with trying to keep up with corporate expectation. And I, I'm happy to tell you confidently that I rock at my job, like I'm excellent at it, but even still, you know, I'm faced with this dilemma of trying to challenge myself. And not that there's anything unhealthy about challenge in that sense, but the expectations only get higher and the promises fall through and of course you know with the context of the reduction in labor all of the jobs that we have in the store stay the same or they increase in number but the people available to do them decrease there is a measurable difference For me, in terms of how that affects my quality of life, I changed positions in that store on account of the fact that I could not relax when I went home. I would go home and the responsibilities that I had in the store were still front of mind. I had to think about what my plan was for the following day. And it was so unhealthy for me that I had to obviously pursue some kind of change. And while I've pursued that and put myself in a healthier place, I mean, I had to sacrifice $4 an hour to get there. Like everybody else, I have a family to support and, then and there, I'm also faced with the dilemma where I'm trying to decide whether or not my suffering in this role is worth the benefit that it, it, it is for the people around me.
6: So you used to be in a manager position yeah. and then you moved down. That's correct. Because your mental health was suffering and you yeah. said that you had to choose between having like a better quality yeah. of life or $4 an hour. And I think that is like so appalling. How do you feel about having to choose between $4 an hour or your mental health?
7: I want to say heartbroken because I do everything I can for my family. They're my driving force. They're what I, what I get up every day for. And, you know, I had to really lean on them and on my therapist to overcome the sense of inadequacy because there are people around me who are able to maintain that role, that position more successfully than I was. They were able to overcome that emotional labor of it. I felt like my hand was forced. It, it was um, a very difficult decision to make. And, I, you know, while I'm, I think I made the correct decision uh, in the long term, how can you make the decision to actively bring less prosperity to the people that you love and care about. You know, what I wanted to describe as selfish reasons, there's really not much more important than your own mental health, but that's how it felt. It was a matter of me separating myself from this unhealthy relationship that was contributing towards the difficulty that I was experiencing in this role, to another role where I was standing a little bit more separate from that and I could work a little bit more independently.
6: How much do you think your work impacts Madison's community as a whole?
7: It's difficult to gauge on the whole, but I really like to think it's significant because there are interactions that I have on a daily basis that remind me that these people think about me when they're not at the store. I have people asking for me when I'm not there. And this isn't a, a wholly individual experience. Lots of baristas have this experience. In part, of course, because of the facade that we're expected to uphold. I mentioned that earlier. You know, that's the customer service voice, among other things. I mean, we're a positive force for people. We are, like I said, we don't have a choice to be, but we are a positive force for people. And in many senses, the consistency of seeing the same people and having a positive interaction with them multiple times a week, I sort of worm my way into people's lives in that sense. And you know, I'm kind of grateful for it. I love the role that I have in the community in that sense, because I love helping to make someone's day better. The only thing I really care about at that job is that when somebody leaves the store, when somebody leaves, that they are better off when they entered, that they're happier when they entered, that they have maybe shrugged off a worry that they entered with. Providing that experience and uplifting people is, in some sense, is my, my biggest prerogative and one of my largest sources of fulfillment in this role. I love making someone's day better. And in general, I just love speaking with the people. I love engaging with them. I love learning their name and what they like and what they're about. Because in some sense, they become characters in my own little tale. I get to live the sitcom every day and they're the characters in the cafe who come and go and they're sometimes dressed immaculately and I love participating in some sense in their lives from a sort of stood back position. I love seeing these people develop and grow in their own ways from this position as well.
6: Would you say that you have to be a people person to work as a
7: barista? I think that people who are not people, persons, inevitably get pushed out of the role by some means. Whether it's corporate or personal, they don't stay long-term in those positions because I think a certain kind of person thrives and uh, most people do not.
6: Do you have any tips on getting hired as a barista?
7: Honestly, anybody who would do well in the role has more than enough capability to get in there. I really talked myself into the role initially, so I think anybody with any measure of charisma can get into the role no problem. If you're going to thrive in that role, please consider it. But in terms of tips, take a good long look at who you are and what fulfills you to begin with, and if connecting with people is something that brings you fulfillment, please apply. Please consider it. If, if connecting with people is something that, that you can do on a regular basis and will really enjoy, this might be the role for you. If you're not, stay away. Stay far away. You're not going to love it because there is a huge measure of interaction with people that you cannot avoid. I think other people who just love the joy of the craft of making drinks this is a great thing for you too. Local cafes are probably the best way to go because they're more focused on the craft of the beverage. My tip for you is if you can get by on 15 $16 an hour and love interacting with people, definitely consider it.
6: And then my last question is, what kind of tips would you give someone who just got hired as a barista?
7: The best advice I can give for you is to find anything and everything you can about the role, all of the aspects of the role, find something that you love, lean into that, and try to remain open-minded and versatile as well. For me, something that I got a kick out of right away is I do love the craft, as I was just describing, actually making the beverages, even if it is on repeat, I do enjoy it. Physically, I get fulfillment from that. The muscle memory that's involved, how fast I can go, Yeah, that's something that I I, I very much enjoy. Find something that you're good at right away. And in addition to that, take a good look at the people around you. And try your best to love them for one, but acknowledge if there are people that you know you're not gonna get it along with. Acknowledge if there's people that you think their behavior maybe doesn't align with yours, or to go further than that, acknowledge if there's any behavior happening already there that could be considered toxic, and consider putting yourself in a different environment if that's the case. Because the longer that something like that goes on, or festers, or normalizes, I don't think you're experiencing is ever going to get to a place where it's flowing and where it's functioning at a healthy level. I think as long as you can find aspects of the role that you do truly enjoy and that you can build upon, go for it.
6: This is Mikey, a barista in Madison. And if nobody has thanked you today, thank thank you. you.
0: And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with (coughs) WORT weather guru, Rob McClure.
1: Well, yesterday's snowstorm ended up playing out uh, pretty closely to expectation. Uh, I was a bit concerned after having called for 5 to 7 inches on the Monday morning forecast when the National Weather Service was going for 10 or 11 that I had uh, gone too low, especially uh, after watching the storm then ramp up on satellite later that evening. Uh, In the end though, the potential mitigating factors that I cited ended up playing uh, each their role in the eventual outcome of just 5.7 inches as measured out at the Dane County Airport. Uh, Nearby locations also received uh, similar amounts, ranging generally between about 4 and and 6.5 inches. The wet nature of the snow, along with ongoing melting, of course, were major culprits in reducing totals. As was the lack of dendritic snow, which was uh, confined to just an hour or two during the afternoon, as best I could tell. More difficult to estimate were the uh, various mechanisms of lift going on above us and their strength, but we uh, did see some slack periods during yesterday, and uh, even at the height of the snowfall, we didn't see terribly impressive snowfall rates. So uh, all in all, pretty much as the various model indicators had it beforehand uh, and the atmosphere actually happened to follow the modeling this time around, so I got lucky in that respect. Uh, Next time around, I'm not so sure. Uh, As I mentioned on Monday, we've got a couple more systems coming at us. One, a weak Alberta clipper type system, uh, already visible actually on satellite, whirling at us from uh, as nearby as northeastern Nebraska now. Uh, will begin snowing on us in just a few hours, so uh, not too much of concern there. Uh, probably just an inch or t- maybe a little more than that uh, at best during this coming overnight and a uh, much drier and fluffier snow too than what's the already stuck out on your local sidewalk there. Uh, of much greater concern is the evidently strong but surprisingly poorly modeled storm that's going to follow on Friday. Uh, I should clarify that there's a general agreement as far as the strength and development and timing and uh, general track of this storm, uh, but there are, uh, has been unusual cleavage between a handful of the high resolution models uh, whose forward time ranges have only just started to take in this storm and the synoptic scale models which take in the whole continent and go out days or weeks in the future. Those latter large-scale models, especially the European and the global forecast systems, show a large-scale and powerful storm deepening prodigiously as it lifts from a nascent lee-side circulation in the Texas panhandle tomorrow evening to somewhere around southern Lake Michigan Friday evening, so that'll be a path very much like this past storm. This one sheds a full 20 or 25 millibars over that time, so that's quite a pressure drop. Uh, not quite what we'd call bombing out, but uh, pretty close. And southern Wisconsin looks to be positioned to get a full, say, 12 or 20 hours of snow out of this. But I think in a slightly colder environment with the possibly steadier and stronger upward forcing along the elevated warm frontal surface to the northwest of the surface circulation, So it's looking like perhaps a slightly better snow producer, potentially. Uh, By contrast, though, a contingent of the high-resolution models uh, led by the high-resolution rapid refresh show the surface circulation considerably weaker and on a far more northward path so that it uh, swings our lowest few thousand feet of the atmosphere up above freezing early Friday to produce rain. The discussions out of both the Milwaukee and the La Crosse uh, National Weather Service offices this afternoon reveal uh, forecasters struggling with exactly how to message this storm, especially at this early stage. So stay tuned to this one. My suspicion is that the coming storm may show a lot of the same features as this past one, with lesser amounts of wetter snow off to our east and higher totals than as you go west. This storm does appear to have access to somewhat better thermal contrast across it and at least as much moisture as this past one, so unless the track gets wonky, I think we should be in for uh, perhaps a more satisfying result this time around, at least if you're looking for a snowstorm. Uh, In any case, though, the strong winds on the backside of the storm, advecting in arctic air, are going to blow around the snow later Friday and Saturday, so that may well interfere with travel outside the city. Uh, But back to the forecast for the details. uh, Briefly, Uh, tonight the clouds will continue to thicken and uh, light snow will move in from the west after uh, looks like about 8 or 9 p.m. I can already see snow starting up through uh, most of Iowa at this point. Uh, An inch or two may uh, fall in the city after uh, somewhat higher amounts uh, uh, with somewhat higher amounts down to our south and west. Temperatures will drop back to the mid 20s on uh, southerly winds at 48 miles per hour. Tomorrow may see uh, some lifting and possibly maybe a little breaking of the cloud cover for a while. Uh, temperatures will recover then to about 30 on veering west to northwest winds at 5 to 10 miles per hour. Clouds will thicken more going overnight with temperatures holding in the 20s before beginning to rise towards about 30 by daybreak. Uh, that'll be as uh, light subtly winds back southeasterly and then east and increase to about 10 to 15 miles per hour. And Friday is a tough call at this point. The only easy part is going to be the winds, which will continue to back more northeasterly and come up to, say, 15 or 25 miles per hour through the day uh, with much stronger gusts in the later daytime and overnight. My guess is that we're going to see wet snow uh, somewhat drier than Tuesday, uh, but uh, likely in similar amounts, perhaps a little bit more. That could easily change even by tomorrow. Uh, This storm is looking uh, definitely trickier than the last one. Uh, temperatures will remain in the low 30s Friday before I think dropping back through the 20s in the ensuing overnight. And snow uh, may uh, well continue into that overnight and it will be lighter and more prone to drifting on north- northerly winds as well. And those will still be up in the tw- 20 to 30 mile per hour range, so that's when travel might start to get a little difficult. Uh, Saturday will be windy and much colder than anything we've uh, seen so far this winter. Temperatures will struggle to return back to 20 degrees. And northwesterly winds will also be up to 15 to 20 miles per hour and still somewhat gusty that day. So uh, chill values will be way down below zero. Temperatures will plummet towards zero overnight uh, despite strong winds continuing up at 10 to 17 miles per hour. And then we'll uh, uh, we'll see a high temperature in the low single digits on Sunday and probably Monday as well. With again overnight temperatures going down below zero. At the moment, at the station down here on Bedford Street, the temperature is 28 degrees, the dew point temperature is 23, winds are currently out of the south at 8 miles per hour, Uh, skies are overcast up at about 1,000 feet above, and uh, the barometer is at 29.53 inches of mercury currently and holding steady over the past few hours.
0: It's now 6.50 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now to 1964 for business news from Atwood Avenue to Hilldale and transportation milestones from the causeway to University Avenue. Stu Levitan has the headlines from 60 years ago on this week's Madison in the 60s. All
5: the come on. They melt into a dream. Madison in the 60s. Business Wire. On January 5th, Edgewater Hotel manager Austin H. Faulkner announces the hotel has purchased 38,000 square feet of lakefront land to its east, part of the historic Hanks Estate from the National Guardian Life Insurance Company, extending its waterfront holdings to nearly a full block for a, quote, unique development to be detailed later. A month later, the insurance company begins construction of its headquarters, a modernistic black cube on the adjoining Vilas Estate. On the morning of April 25th, the development firm Madison Properties Incorporated reveals a $12 million project consisting of 26 buildings along a one-mile stretch of University Avenue, with 650 apartments, a 200-room Ramada Inn, plus commercial and office space. Later that afternoon, it announces plans to build a 10-story, 225-room Holiday Inn in the 400 block of State Street, which would be the second attempt to build a hotel where Victor Music burned down in December 1961. Developer Gerald Bartel says he has an accepted offer from Meyer Victor and hopes to begin construction by late July. On July 20th, about 200 people, most of them state employees, attend the dedication of the five-building, $12 million Hill Farm State Office Building complex, occupied since February. There is probably not another office building in Wisconsin that houses people whose functions are so vital to the continuation of an orderly society as this one, Governor John Reynolds says, citing the Public Service Commission, Industrial Commission, and Department of Motor Vehicles. On September 10th, the council proves a compromise with the towns of Madison and Fitchburg over 16 disputed annexations, under which Madison annexes Eagle Heights, the two university farms on Mineral Point Road, and the Westside Businessmen's Club, while the town of Madison keeps 12 parcels, including the Sears Warehouse on Fordham Avenue. On October 22nd, the council defeats 14 to 6, a zoning amendment that would have stopped absentee landlords from renting single-family homes in the university fringe area to students. The failed amendment by Vilas Area Alderman Harrison Garner, which would have limited family to bona fide residents of Madison, quote, bound together by ties of blood, marriage or dependency, was supported by the Lake Wingra Community Council and recommended for adoption by the Plan Commission but successfully opposed by the Wisconsin Student Association and the Board of Realtors. On October 25th, the Hilldale Shopping Center, which has grown to include 35 stores, shops, and offices, celebrates its second anniversary. Fifteen downtown merchants now have full stores at the center. On November 19th, Defense Secretary Robert McNamara announces that all Air Force installations and operations at Truex Air Force Base will close by July 1968, leaving only a squadron of the Wisconsin Air National Guard. The city estimates the base, with 2,708 military and civilian employees, pumps about $20 million into the Madison economy, about a third of which goes to local businesses. The airfield, headquarters for the 30th North American Air Defense Command, was named after Madison fighter pilot, First Lieutenant Thomas L. Truax, killed in a training flight in November 1941. Madison Municipal Airport Superintendent Robert Skult says he expects the land and buildings to be turned over to the city. The closing will take about 800 students and about $230,000 in federal aid out of the Madison schools. November 27th, describing the Atwood Avenue Business District as an area, quote, of old deteriorating structures and traffic congestion that offers depressing, unexciting appearance for its unplanned, inconvenient, unattractive, and mixed use, the city plan department calls for a variety of initiatives, including a shopping center at Shanks Corners. And on December 21st, the council approves the purchase price of $175,000 for 41 acres of UW land at Mineral Point and Rosé Road for the proposed Hickory Hill Park, and files an application for a federal grant to defray some of the cost. The park is ultimately named for Vilas Area Alderman Harrison Garner. And these transportation milestones. February 19th. Residents of the Burr Oaks area in South Madison have been pleading with the Madison Bus Company for years to extend its Park Street line a half mile to give them service. Just days after Alderman Richard Kopp introduces a resolution to study a municipal bus system because the company had, quote, failed to provide the type of bus service which is essential to the welfare and property of city residents, this company agrees to extend the line. On April 12th, traffic engineer John Birch proposes the Outer Circle as a way to facilitate parking and ease the current traffic congestion on the Capitol Square, which is caused by the current load of more than 16,000 cars a day. The plan, featuring five new sets of lights to regulate traffic moving in the opposite direction as traffic on the square, is in place by fall and quickly gains acceptance. In September, the council makes North Lake Street, which had been one way toward Lake Mendota between University Avenue and State Street, a two-way street. On November 3rd, voters approved by better than 2 to 1, borrowing $6.5 million in three bond issues for major street projects, including the Monona Causeway, University Avenue, and Highway 113, along with improvements to the airport and to storm and sanitary sewers. Two days later, the State Public Service Commission approves the plans and specifications for dredging to create the roadbed for the causeway. Construction bids come in under budget, and the city plans to open the road by late 1966. December 2nd, the State Highway Commission officially approves the University Avenue Expressway. Land acquisition will cost about $5 million, with construction estimated at $6 million. The federal government will pay about half. Construction should start in about a year and be done by 1970. On December 17th, It's bicycles, not cars, that concerned Police Chief Wilbur Emery at a traffic commission meeting. He wants all 14,000 banned from State Street and the Capitol Square at all times and from other main streets during morning and evening rush hours. Bicycles slow traffic and become hazards, Emery tells the traffic commission, noting the 52 bike accidents this year, 41 involving injuries. The commission does not act on Emery's request. And as the year ends, the State Highway Commission marks State Street as a scenic route and calls for the removal of all overhead signs and billboards. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported, bike-riding WORT news team, I'm Stu Levitan.
1: And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6 our headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Special thanks to feature contributors Riley Cutright, Stu Levitan, and Wisconsin News Connections' Mike Moen. Katie Gergella is our on air engineer. Faye Parks produced the newscast, and Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure.
0: And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Good night.